Well, hello, Chris. Hey, John. Welcome to you and to those listening to a, another fresh episode of Saul Searching, the Outsider podcast for Better Call Saul, where we talk about the latest episode of the Breaking Bad spinoff. Yay! Yay! So this week we're talking about the fourth episode of season two, which was called Gloves Off. And I, I guess I would like to take a moment to, before we get to maybe talking about the name of the episode... Thus far this season on the podcast, we have not been mentioning the names of the writers and the directors of the episodes we've been talking about. And I think we did that last season, and I think the reason why it's useful on this show is because it is such a strong show in terms of those two elements, that the visual yeah. language and the direction is always such a strong point of the storytelling, and also the writing, the dialogue, the plot, everything else that we like about that. So I do think it's worth shouting out to these writers and directors. Will you indulge me, Chris, if I just go back in time and I just mention who wrote and directed the the three episodes before this one, and then we'll, we'll get into this one? Will That's you? okay, because it's cool to know. Yes, it's cool to know, and we should have been doing it all along. So... Um, the first episode of season two was written and directed by Thomas Schnauz, who is a uh, a longtime Breaking Bad writer um, and ha- played a heavy role in the first season of Better Call Saul as well. Schnauz. Schnauz. And that was the episode Switch. And the episode, the second episode, Cobbler, was directed by Terry McDonough and written by Jennifer Hutchison. And both of them have a history with Better Call Saul and Breaking Bad, too. So you can see why so much of this content feels so dead on is because the, the, the team's that have been working on yeah. it have been there's been a lot of continuity between the two shows in that way. Uh, the third episode, Amarillo, was directed by Scott Winant and written by Jonathan Glatzer. And then the last one, which is the one we're talking about now, Gloves Off, was directed by Adam Bernstein. He of, you know, the video for Love Shack and all those cool They Might Be Giants videos oh. back in the day. Right. Who also directed the It's Pat movie, oddly enough, but has since gone on yeah. to develop and oh I always think of him as a guy who must be in on the ground floor with a lot of shows because Adam Bernstein has directed a lot of pilots. Mm-hmm. I think he directed the pilot for 30 Rock, for instance. You know, he's he's been around in that sense. The episode of Breaking Bad I always think of that Adam Bernstein directed, that really stands out to me. He did a lot of the early ones, but the one that I always remember is that episode uh, Box Cutter, mm-hmm. where Gus kills his underling, Victor, in front of Jesse and Walt to kind of show them how serious he is about yeah. about his standards. Um, I just remember that being a really well shot episode and a really creepy scene, and Adam Bernstein was behind that. He's a he's a name director. He gets to he gets to do the cool things. I guess so. I mean, they bring him in. He's not really a name in the sense that most people would know. But if you've watched these shows, right, the business knows. Like, get him for the pilot. And it's like there's a certain style that he brings. Like, if you think about those the Love Shack video and the They Might Be Giants videos he did, it's weird to see that DNA in someone's music video work and then track it decades later to directing dramatic television like this. But occasionally I will see little shot choices that seem to me like that is both an Adam Bernstein-looking shot, Mm -hmm. but also that's kind of become a Breaking Bad slash Better Call Saul type of shot because the photography has always been really interesting on these shows. They always find a semi-motivated reason (laughs) to, to to stick a camera in an interesting spot, you know? Right. Uh, anyway, also, the episode Gloves Off, last but not least, was written by Gordon Smith, who wrote the Mike episode 5.0, which was episode 6 of season 1 of Better Call Saul, which was also directed by Adam Bernstein. So, ah. whew, now I feel better. I've given some of these these great creative people their props right here at the top end of the show. <laughs> Now, Gloves Off, when I saw the uh, title last week, I thought, well, that's probably 
uh, going to be figurative, and it refers to uh, uh, Chuck and Jimmy uh, really going at it and having a big fight, but there's no actual gloves. Like, we're not going to see someone take off their isotoners and leave them on the coffee table or something. Um, although you never know with episode titles if they refer to something like that. But it turns out it seems to refer to the little boxing gloves, silver necklace charm thingy or whatever it is that Tuco has that ends up ends up on Mike's kitchen table. Yeah, at the beginning of the episode, they had one of those great cold opens where something has changed, something's going on, and we don't know what exactly it is. Right. It reminded me instantly of 5.0 from last year, which is a fitting because the creative team behind it and it focuses on Mike. But remember that episode began with Mike arriving at the train station and kind of doctoring himself up with a, with a lady's sanitary napkin? Yes. And we didn't know how he got injured. So last night's episode kind of began the same way. And I, so, of course, you're looking for all those little visual cues that will help you put together later what this scene was all about. It picks up from the end of last week where we, we had Nacho saying to Mike, there's a guy that I need to go away. And we didn't know for sure what Mike's answer was going to be. We, we had a hunch that he might get further embroiled in this business just because of what we know about Mike, but we didn't know. So this episode does kind of answer that question right up front, him showing up home with the money and the, and the bashed up face. That was a nice little series of reveals that tells you that in some way, shape or form, Mike did take the job. We've never really seen Mike like that before, I don't think. Oof. It was rough. And then, yes, the boxing gloves. Tuco wore those in Breaking Bad. No. Oh. Based on what happens in this episode, it's confusing to note, like, how does he maybe get them back, or does he buy another pair? Yeah. Uh, but we'll, we'll we'll actually get to some of that later on in the episode, uh, just in terms of Tuco's role. But as far as that opening scene, yeah, it totally lets you know that something happened, but it didn't go down in a way that was that was easy. So yeah, in a way, this episode felt like it was about Mike and Jimmy both having a hard time negotiating between the person that they, they feel that they're supposed to be and the person that they naturally want to be. We're going to see more of this of evolution of Mike into a killer the way that we're seeing this evolution of Jimmy into a huckster lawyer. Right. So the other big question going into this episode, and as guys who watch the next week on, we saw a little bit of what was going to happen with Jimmy and the partners at uh, Davis and Maine, but we didn't know the context. All we knew was that Clifford Maine says that we voted two to one uh, to fire you for cause. <laughs> I don't know. What's, what's the difference in in firing you for cause and just firing you. But anyway, we had that indication that he was going to get fired. Exactly. And we didn't know how it was, we didn't know how that scene was going to play out. We had some little questions floating around that scene such as are the partners going to dislike the commercial as well as as be pissed that he went around them in making it? Um, you know, what is are we going to see these other partners? How are they going to unfold as characters? We didn't really know much about them. So I felt mm. like these seem like adults. And, and we've been enjoying this man-child bullshit, you know, this whole time. And here are grown-ups. <laughs> yeah. He's doing so many things that he doesn't know are unprofessional. And mainly it's just the reputation of the law firm. It's like you're linking our law firm with a cheesy, cheap commercial, whereas, you know, we've got clients who are not into that at all. They want a quiet law firm that's only known by reputation or whatever. There were a couple of phrases that stood out to me in that scene. Uh, one of the partners says that ex exuberance is no excuse. And the other one I liked that, um, you know, Jimmy kept saying experiment and, and Clifford Maine said, you keep using the word experiment like you're the goddamn Wright brothers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I feel like that, that feeling of being in trouble was the same feeling of 
being in trouble as a kid, you know, throughout like every instance of getting in trouble as a kid is like, yeah, but I've never been told that that was the rule, that we didn't do that. I didn't realize that this was a trouble-worthy offense. I just thought, you know, try this thing this way, you know. Uh, and, of course, you're in trouble, and there's nothing really that you can do or say except for I'm, I'm a kid. I didn't know that. But you'd like to think that Jimmy would maybe take his lumps and say, okay, all right, right. Okay. Be, be smart enough to realize, oh, now's the moment to be quiet and stern, the same way that Kim did when she's in her crucible getting in trouble. The fact that he did not seem to quite get what they were saying about the commercial being kind of off, I don't know, off brand. I don't know if you want to think, like, I guess a law firm has a brand just like anything else, you know, so if it was, he didn't seem to understand that. And that that that's sort of endearing and, and kind of sad about Jimmy that, like last week when Kim kind of, implied that the commercial was kind of cheesy and she was surprised that Clifford Mann had signed off on it. Yeah. You could tell that Jimmy didn't quite know how to read that either, that like he thought he was making something really good. Right. I mean, I just wonder if Jimmy if Jimmy could fit in if he tried at this point. Yeah, yeah. That's a good question. I mean, if he gets it uh, from here on, oh, this is the kind of commercial that fits with your brand of a very serious law firm that is not interesting or entertaining, uh, then, yeah, he could go forward and make tweaks to that that he could get... Uh, approved by Clifford, uh, but that's not necessarily in his nature. How, how long do you picture Jimmy being at, at Davis and Maine at this point? Hmm. Good question. Three more episodes, but that's just guessing. And by, and by three, I mean two and a half, you know, but yeah, that's just a total guess because they could decide Davis and Maine is the story of this entire season, and we're going to keep him in there by having some kind of politics where he has an enemy that he's fighting within the place, and he's winning, and then he's losing, then he's winning, then he's losing, and then he's gone. Uh, or they could, you know, have him on thin ice, and then towards the end of the next episode, he could get fired and, and then be on uh, uh, vacationing on the lake. Yeah, he has yet to face the kind of consequences that uh, poor Kim Wexler has already faced, which I felt really bad for Kim in this episode. Um but I thought it was a great transition from a directorial standpoint. I, I, I loved the, the the transition from him, you know, ending the meeting with Davis in Maine to trying to call Kim to just by the visual language of seeing that her phone is in the tote with her, you know, with the key fobs and stuff, just telling you that she's in a meeting with Chuck. I mean, <laughs> Kim found out from Howard and Chuck about Jimmy's lie. Yeah. And the question I had in that moment was, why is she not doing a better job of defending herself? I think they did a good job of answering the question in the show. Yeah, that, that all comes up later between Chuck and, and, and Jimmy uh, when he says, she didn't know, she didn't know. So there's a combination of not making Jimmy seem that bad that he would lie to her too, but also there's humiliation in someone lying to you and you being fooled. It's not the kind of thing you, w- you would readily ad- admit. She also knows not to act like Jimmy was just acting in his meeting a few minutes ago and by dancing around and giving excuses. She knows her standing is damaged and she's going to take whatever she has to, to to get back to where she was, you know. Jimmy doesn't have that kind of fealty to any system. Right. What you and I were wondering about was what's the real status of that relationship? The fact that Kim is still saying she's with Jimmy, I mean, like maybe the next wave of storytelling is going to be about Jimmy really trying to follow the rules rather than what I was expecting, which is Jimmy just burning it all down. Mm-hmm. It's a interesting definition for sure to say oh you just uh, you know screwed me up messed up my whole career but i'm not breaking up with you but i'm, I'm not going to say that explicitly but i'm not going to deny it and so we're we're still a thing right but i thought that was just really funny when he was like so he just was almost assuming well obviously we're quits and he's so we're we're not done now yeah 
But uh, but while we're still on Kim being in trouble, I wanted to point out that the end of the scene where she's being chastened and Chuck's left alone with Howard and he says to Howard, what are you going to do? And uh, we just leave it at that. And it does seem kind of innocent. But uh, later when we're we're considering, uh, you know, Chuck's part in that or he's being accused by Jimmy of, uh, uh, you know, sending sending him to the cornfield. It's like it makes me ask the question, well, did that was that kind of a, a gentle prodding or an accidental gentle prodding on his point? You know, Howard may have been th- sitting there thinking, well, I can punish her in this in some small way, or I guess that's about enough to, to uh, uh, ball her out like that. But then with that little, what are you going to do, may have sort of gently prodded him to say, yeah, he's right. I need to do a little more. At the very least, he's putting it on Howard's plate to say, well, what are you going to do about Kim? You know, right. But we also remember that Howard was kind of a dick to Kim uh, at several points last year. So it doesn't surprise me to see that Howard's not quite back to season one Howard. He's, he's a more complex character, but he's still the same guy who was so snippy and shitty with Kim back when we thought he was a dick. You know what I mean? He did a great job of acting like one. So I think this episode, mm-hmm. for me, was a little bit of an, oh, I guess Howard may be more, he may be back in a slightly antagonistic spot. Chuck's becoming, to me, a lot more... He's oozing towards a more sympathetic place because I think that seeing later in the episode that he, as as much as things got strained between he and Jimmy, as mu- as awful as the truth was and as awful as he was about it to Jimmy last year, mm-hmm. Jimmy's the one who said "Ah, to hell with this" and left. That there that Chuck's like he's willing to have a conversation with Jimmy, and they're both in denial about some certain aspect of themselves. I think that uh, Chuck says to Jimmy, "You're like an alcoholic who doesn't want to admit that he has a problem." When you could say that about Chuck with his psychosomatic condition, the first time Jimmy does something wrong, Chuck's going to say, "You're doing something wrong," but he's not actively trying to make Jimmy look bad. He's letting he's kind of letting Jimmy do that, you know? Right, right. Well, and here Jimmy tries to make this deal with Chuck and. Uh you know he's he's like willing to quit law entirely just to fix Kim's situation so i think that that was very intense and says a lot about how much he loves Kim or wants to help her and and how much he doesn't you know really love the law he's just in it i loved that scene between Chuck and Jimmy so much because so much of what the show is about came out in that scene everything about Chuck's kind of hypocritical assessment of Jimmy that I was just mentioning where Chuck has his own problems but also just the nature of saying life is not one big game of let's make a deal and Jimmy says yes it is (laughs) yeah I mean right there you have why these two guys butt heads you know and Jimmy calls people on it he calls Chuck an asshole he says you're such an asshole and Chuck says why for pointing out that Kim's one mistake was believing in you you know like that's mean but it's founded in, in what we've just seen happen. When Jimmy's offering to quit the law uh, for Kim's sake, what he says yeah. is, no more Jimmy McGill, Esquire, poof, like he never existed. And I'm thinking, well, yeah, but Saul Goodman exists. We don't know when or why or how fully that name change is a full-on lifestyle change, but it was still, to me, it was a, a little wink to mm-hmm. Jimmy's like almost creating a back door in his own guarantee that he'll stop. He's always looking for that little loophole. Right, and for all we know, they could make a deal later uh, and... And then his his way of getting around it is to change his name. Do you think they're going to get further apart, or do you think that we're going to see Chuck, you know, do something for Jimmy? Yeah, uh, it's a very good question. I have no idea. I feel like, you know, if something terrible happened to Jimmy where Chuck could rescue him, he would come in as a brother and do that again. But 
outside of that, it just seems like they would have an ongoing adversarial relationship mm-hmm. that could only get worse until one of them does something really bad to the other. So uh, we haven't said much about the Mike and Nacho plotline as far as how it actually plays out. I thought there were some pretty interesting little callbacks to Breaking Bad throughout that plotline. The one of the big yeah. ones is that Mike buys a gun or goes to buy a gun, ends up not buying a gun from uh, the the arms dealer uh, played by Jim Beaver, who is an, a character actor who popped up on a lot of shows I enjoyed. Particularly, he had a, a great role as a character named Ellsworth on Deadwood, and I thought I, I just thought that was a great little scene, uh, mostly because of seeing Jim Beaver again, um, but also the little hints of Mike's military history that we got from that scene, that Mike makes a crack about the M40 that the arms dealer shows him, now has a fiberglass stock, used to be made with a wooden stock, and Mike starts talking about how it could warp, and he says somebody probably should have figured that out before they sent him into the damn jungle. I mean, my thought was probably Vietnam, just age-wise. Mike seems about right for Vietnam. It's very clear it's Vietnam time timeline-wise because the, the gun, he says the Marines have been using that since 1966 and then it changed to fiberglass in 1970 or something so that that puts you right there oh you're right really telegraphs that he was there and saw action and uh but in a cool way in a cool way that is like more like a shared shorthand between the two men where the old guy you feel you feel like the other guy kind of gets that and there's almost like a moment between them that's like yeah we won't we won't talk about this right and then beyond that you have something that i realized in this episode maybe i've noticed it before but it's the first time i thought about it in context with the show's lead character which is just that mike and jimmy are both terrific con men because Mm -hmm. mike the little scene he plays where he comes and he nicks tuco's car and he Mm -hmm. all that stuff it's like the character of mike just like last year when he duped the two cops into thinking he was blind drunk and he was babbling and stuff he he is willing to put on a little character and and you yeah. know as part of his scams maybe that's something a lot of characters in shows like this have is that ability to pretend to be somebody but i just feel like it's part of we've seen mike do it enough times now that it seems re- very um the way that he can subtly change his tone and demeanor with somebody you know it's very crucial yeah i thought that was a great acting job because it uh, on on the part of the actor and on the part of mike a little less, but still a good it's acting within acting. He's <laughs> how can I put this? It's like he's acting well enough that we, as the viewers, can believe that Tuco believes that he's a sort of a innocent, uh, dumb old man uh, who's also a little bit prickish. Uh, but we can also see that he's not as realistic as Mike the ex-cop Vietnam vet. Yeah, right, within the show. Right, we can see, oh, he's kind of acting, but we can we can believe that Tuco wouldn't think that. When you were saying that, it was making me think of, you know, Mel Blanc as Bugs Bunny doing Daffy Duck for a second or making fun of Porky Pig or something. Right, and the best part of that was when, I guess, they, they got his keys or something, and, uh, and Mike says, uh, come on, guys. Mm-hmm. Just like something he, something Mike would never say. Right, right, but right. But that, that totally would be said by a regular goofy, nebbishy guy. Oh, come on, guys. Right. Well, or just a clueless guy or something. Right, a clueless guy talking to some gangsters who doesn't realize, who doesn't realize you don't call these two people 
hey guys, what's up? You know. Well, he's an old school old guy who just wants to leave. He just wants to get out of there. He just he does he's not thinking it's that big of a deal. And it's it's funny to us because we know Mike is being so precise that when he comes in and he nicks the car and stuff, it's like that's just something Mike would never do. He would never make dumb mistakes like that, you know. So right, it's funny right. on its face, but it's also you can see how it's catering towards exactly Tuco's level of depravity that they he's 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 you know the car that Tuco cares so much about right down to the lack of respect right down to the fact that he's not showing real fear in the face of Tuco everything Mike is saying and doing is just pushing Tuco's buttons and I think that uh I think that Nacho I love how in that scene Nacho seems nervous he's playing his part within the scene as well but he's not uh, you know he's not quite the actor that that Mike is so Mike takes on a non-lethal option you know for less money Right. Yeah, for twenty five instead of fifty. Do you think that that was hastened? That decision was hastened along by by being reminded of being in the army by by his military past and handling those guns. Like, why did he change his mind? Did he change his mind in that moment that he wasn't going to kill a guy because he was looking at the guns? Maybe I'm getting ahead of the end of the episode, which is the moment that we're left with is is not just saying to Mike, you you went a long way not to pull that trigger. Why? Yeah. Yeah. And and Mike just leaves it dangling. Like that line doesn't have a resolution to it. That is a good question and we've, we th- this is like three episodes in a row or something where we've had the question like what would have, what was Mike thinking in that moment? I guess maybe this and we we just fill it in with something that turns out to kind of seem to to work but you really don't know. But um but yeah, maybe it is when he looks at all the guns, he just thinks there's got to be another way uh than doing something as awful as vietnam or something you know and and then he goes but then the thing the the plan he pulls off is much more risky and fraught with uh you know like when he's talking about killing him earlier with nacho he's talking about how this could go wrong that could go wrong but the thing he actually does seems much more dangerous it seems like there was 20 points in there where it could have gotten off track and then also he ends up getting his face you know, ground to a pulp, and uh, and then yeah, Nacho leaves it. You went you went a long way not to pull that trigger. Why? And Mike just doesn't answer. And so yet again, we're left with that question: What was he thinking? Mm-hmm. And I felt like he was thinking, "That's a good question," and I won't make that mistake again. You know, I, 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 but that was just what I felt like I don't have a real good clue he could have been thinking well you don't go around killing people because that's someone's child and uh, let's hold sacred uh, people's lives but it felt to me like yeah Nacho you're right I just went to all this extra trouble to avoid killing someone and they just turned out to be a terrible person (laughs) and I got really beat up and for what and I made 25,000 less dollars I should have just killed him. You know, it's funny that I was picturing it much more the stoic Mike who knows what his reasons are and leaving saying I'm o- I only made 25k but but I'm not going to kill anybody. Could be. He is total blank. What I took was Nacho kind of in vain trying to understand why this other guy isn't as bloodthirsty as he would be or as pragmatic as he would be. Like in a weird way Nacho's kind of saying mm-hmm what Jimmy's saying to Chuck, why aren't you going to roll around in the muck with me? Like Nacho's asking this old man mm-hmm. why he why he took a beating and less money, but he's also wondering like, why do you care about this thing that seems incidental to what we're d- dealing with here? When, when you're talking about a guy like mm-hmm. Tuco and what is his life worth versus 
the people that he's going to kill or have killed or, or be indirectly related mm-hmm. to their deaths. But what you're suggesting, which I really like, is that Nacho's just kind of speaking his mind, right. and Mike is actually going home feeling a little bit like an like a like a chump. He's actually feeling like, wait a minute. Yeah, I went through all that and looked at my face, and I could have made fifty thousand and gotten out of there much easier. That's what Mike, when he's putting the frozen vegetables on his face, what he's got ringing in his ears is that question of, uh, you know, uh, why did I put myself through this? He does explain earlier in the episode, you know, his, his, some reasoning. He says, uh, you know, for you, Nacho, you need to, uh, not kill him. Here's another thing you can do because if you kill him, the Salamancas will be worrying about it and you'll have a bigger problem then than you do now. So that's a, that's a rational reason. Uh, but that's to save the other guy to to help Nacho, which is not his, not what he's been asked to do, you know. So, yeah, it is still a real question at the end. Why did you, why did you not pull that trigger? But now we've got these, you know, like Nacho and Mike have had some great moments together, and there's almost a little bit of warmth between the two characters, or respect, or something. Like when Nacho tells the story of Dog Paulson. And how Tuco blew his brains out in front of him, and he's got this piece of skull <laughs> embedded in his, yeah. like around his clavicle. Um, uh, uh, it was very, uh, like, that was a great grisly detail, but it also just said all you needed to say about Nacho's orientation with regards to Tuco, that he's worked beside him, he's with him, but he's he's seen too much to feel mm-hmm. comfortable around the guy, you know, but he, he knows yeah. he can't be free of him, you know? Yeah. So if we don't see any more Tuco, that was a great send-off. Yeah. How do you see those characters reconnecting in some way, whether it's Jimmy and Nacho? I guess maybe throwing Jimmy and Mike in it together pretty soon would be a, would be something I would enjoy. I don't know what's going to happen. It, it, it does seem like a, a good question of, you know, maybe Nacho has to get someone to uh, pretend to represent Tuco while throwing the case and trying to actually get him sent up for as long as he can, and he, he enlists Jimmy in that. Uh, or maybe we just cut away and go, well, we, we don't see Tuco again. Yeah, I mean, I'd be fine with that. Got anything else? No, I think we covered everything I wanted to, to touch on. Well, folks, I guess that's about it for us then. If you want to get in touch with the show, you can email us at saulsearching at gmail.com. You can get us on Twitter at Saul underscore searching. And uh, as always, I've saved one little Easter egg for the end of the episode, Chris. Um, it, this might be a big one for some people because it could jump right out at you. Mm. But the the guy in the Mexican restaurant dropping off the money with Tuco, he's wearing a shirt that says Tampico on it. Mm-hmm. And Tampico is the company owned by the father of the character Crazy Eight, and that's who that is, Crazy Eight, who was part of the opening storyline on Breaking Bad. He was in the he was in the RV, and they thought he was dead from the fumes from the meth, and then they brought him back, and Walt had him like chained to a post in his basement. Yeah, oh. and it was like a real step down in in terms of Walt's morality because he chokes the guy out. You know, he ends up killing him. And Tampico is what now? That's the company that he referred to in that episode as being one that his father ran and he and Walt sang the jingle from that like the commercial that ran uh-huh. for it uh, as like an you know as a point of it was a creepy little moment but it was those yeah. two characters kind of bonding over this commercial that yeah. they remembered but it was part of Crazy Eight's effort to like humanize himself and to Walt yeah well I thought you were just saying that that the indication was that the guy on last night was Crazy Eight's brother or cousin or something like that no it was it was the same actor I mean it was it was, it was him oh yeah it was Crazy Eight okay it's been so long since I've seen it well, that's cool. In an episode that's going to have Tuco in it, and it's going to have the gun dealer, why not throw in Crazy Eight? You don't want them to do too much of that, but this was an episode that really was fraught with with Breaking Badness, you know? 
Yeah. In a good way. Yeah, very much in a good way. So that's it. Hot talk. Hot talk. Hot talk.